Welcome to Grazy Her's Life on the Land podcast summer series, where members of the Grazy Her team pick their favourite podcast episode from the last 12 months. Hope you enjoy another look at these amazing stories. Hi, I'm Sammy O'Brien, and I co-host Grazy Her's Life on the Land podcast. Each week, we tell the stories of women living across regional, rural and remote Australia. My favourite Life on the Land episode so far is with Camille McClymont. I loved her story because it's so different to anything I've ever experienced and probably will ever experience. Her story of the devastating floods that ravaged their property in the remote Kimberley region of Western Australia was one I won't forget listening to. The logistics involved in moving such huge numbers of stock in such a short amount of time shifting machinery and witnessing firsthand the devastation of Mother Nature, all whilst having a relatively young baby in tow, which just brings a whole new dimension to such a trying situation. I really hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as I did. A quick note. In this episode, we talk about eating disorders and mental ill health. If this is triggering for you, talk to someone now by calling the Butterfly Foundation's National Helpline on 1800 33 4673 or visit butterfly.org where you can chat online or by email. G'day, welcome to Life in the Land, a Grazy Her podcast telling the stories of women living across rural and remote Australia. I'm M. Herbert, your host. Camille McClymont's Instagram, The Cattleman's Daughter, is a vivid slice of outback station life. Through the red dust, the blazing sunsets and the days of mustering, the 31-year-old gives a little snapshot into her days spent managing her family's property, Kalida Station. With 10,000 head of cattle spread across 122,000 hectares in Western Australia's Kimberley, it's a life that is extraordinarily different to the ones most of us lead – a three-hour drive away from the nearest town on a good and dry day, it's remote and busy. Add in a toddler son and a co-manager husband, and it's packed to the rafters. But there have been some serious bumps along the road for Camille. This crazy her was in her early teens when a series of devastating twists of fate marked the beginning of a life-threatening eating disorder. I was 14 and we just had quite a few big changes um, up until that point. Um, I definitely wouldn't say I'd been sheltered, but I hadn't had anything major happen. And in the space of a couple of months, uh, I lost my grandmother and then my brother, my older brother, he was 17 at the time, doing year 12 at boarding school. Um, He was diagnosed with aplastic anemia, which is, it's a form of leukemia, but it's a lot rarer and yeah he was he was very ill so mum had to actually go to Perth and she was gone for quite a long time and it was just me at home with uh, dad who was working and my younger sister who was eight at the time so we went from yeah everything being fine to being at home me looking after my little sister and not really knowing what was going on with my brother but just knowing that it was really really bad um, so that was when it kind of started. And I think when I got, because we, my little sister and I ended up going to Perth um, and I was a bone marrow transplant for my brother. And when I when I got to Perth, my mum noticed 
um, straight away that something was wrong because, I, yeah, I just, I'd been using, I think I'd been using uh, food as a way to control what was going on because it was literally the only thing I could control in my life at that time. And I probably would have been all right because she picked it up quite early, but then I went to boarding school. So my, my brother had chemo. He, we did the bone marrow transplant. He was fine after that. He was very successful. And then I stayed down in Perth for boarding school and it was a great school. I made a lot of friends, but I hated boarding school. Mm. Um, I'd never been in the city before. I'd always been, you know, in the outback and I, it was cold. I was miserable and it was just too much of a change for me. So I actually got a lot worse. And then, yeah, by the end of the year, I definitely was well into an eating disorder and we decided that I wouldn't go back to boarding school, that I was going to stay home and would, we would try and get through it. And I had my first admission into hospital at the end of that year. And from there, I would definitely say the next four to five years, it got worse, a lot worse before it got better. That is such a challenging sequence of events leading up to that and your diagnosis where was home for you at that stage uh so at that stage we had uh we had Calida station which is where we live now but we also had a station on the Gibb River Road and it was a lot bigger and a lot more work um so mum and dad were very busy with that and that's where we were based the majority of the time and it's it was actually a lot more isolated than what Calida is like we're three hours from town now it was like four and a half mm. on a good day from town at Charlie River yeah so very isolated and that must have just made treatment so difficult I mean how did your your parents tackle that and, and as a family how did you seek support it was really hard very hard on uh, my siblings and my parents because my mum every time I had to go to birth for treatment because I was still quite young my mum would come with me and I think what would normally have happened if I lived in town would be that I'd have outpatient um, regular outpatient checkups but because um, I only went down every couple of months I'd go down and in that time I'd, I'd get quite ill and so I'd have to be admitted for a couple of months and then once I got to a stage where I was okay, they'd be like, okay, you can go home now. So I'd go home and then, you know, I might be all right for a little while, but then something would happen and I'd go downhill again. So it was just this never ending cycle of, you know, home, okay, for a little while, bad, go mm. to Perth, inpatient. So it just, yeah, but there, short of us moving to Perth, there wasn't really any other way to do it because, um, I mean, Broom just didn't have, I, I did actually go and see a doctor in Broom and I remember mum and I walked out of that appointment and we're like, never again. It's just, Why they just that? approached it in the completely, he just had no idea. Yeah, just, it, there's certain things that you don't say to someone with an eating disorder and he just didn't have the knowledge of how to treat it or what to say. Yeah, so we, we said, we'll go to Perth, that's it. So short of moving to Perth, what we were doing was really the only option. And there are so many con misconceptions around eating disorders. I mean, it's not like you can just say, well, just eat and you'll be better. What, you know, can you tell us what it's like to have 
a challenge like that or, or a diagnosed eating disorder. It's not the case of, well, you just go and have a hamburger and you'll be right. Yeah. And that's like the biggest thing that people struggle with, with understanding it is for me, it wasn't about losing weight at all. It was because food was the only thing I felt I could control. And so after, you know, after my brother got well and life sort of returned to normal, I still had that coping mechanism that food was how I could control things when anything, you know, went wrong. And then once you get to a certain weight, you're not thinking logically, like you can't think properly. Like I couldn't sit down and read a book because I just, my concentration was gone. Like you're not, you're not thinking and the eating disorder just controls every thought of every day like yeah it's like having someone in your brain telling you what to do and it's like a bully in your brain all the time it sounds I think that's such a, an amazing way of describing it it does sound pretty incomprehensibly terrifying what are some of the things that people shouldn't say to somebody who has a dis- eating disorder I think bringing it back to weight is definitely one of the things like for someone with an eating disorder numbers are everything so like I would never tell anyone what weight I got down to because that's such a trigger for someone in the same position like it's yeah anything to do with numbers is extremely triggering I guess the big one is yeah just just go and eat like that's just it's got nothing to do with it it's not like that at all you can't just go and eat because there's so many emotions and feelings and eating disorders it is a disease but it's an invisible one in that it's not like you can see a broken leg or perhaps a a cancerous tumor something like that for you being an inpatient that must have been incredibly disruptive to your life how did you cope during that time because I imagine it's kind of like a vicious cycle where being disrupted for that length of time being away from your home would have been so stressful and so you would then try and control the situation by food or dietary intake how did you cope yeah that's why I think I got a lot worse um, before I got better because I from the doctor's point of view, I that when they admitted me, I was getting better, but in my mind, I was getting so much worse because being inside, a lot of the time I was on bed rest, which, you know, is ter- horrible for a person who, you know, I can I go outside, I do whatever I want as a kid, like the outdoors is where I always was. And then suddenly I'm in a cold hospital room made to stay on my bed. So, yeah, I got... I got a lot worse with those hospital admissions and my end sort of just like it, it just grew like it got so much stronger because everything was out of control I had no say in anything which I mean from a medical point of view you know I that's where I needed to be but that sort of treatment you honestly don't know how they could have done it differently but mm. for me personally it made me so much worse. Mm, yeah looking back on reflection how would you have done things differently or if you were to treat yourself as a child what could you possibly have done coming from the outback and having your bush sensibility I think if they did have something um in broom where I could have gone in maybe once a fortnight um, and then gone home that would have been the best thing rather than having to fly to Perth for you know and spend three months in hospital if I could have just done that outpatients in Broome that's what would have been the best thing. And did you end up seeing a psychologist or were you working with a psychologist alongside the medical staff in the hospital? Yeah yeah so when I went to Perth 
um, they had a team, like an eating disorders team. And so you had your psycholo psychologist, psychiatrist, dietitian, yeah, all part of your team, which was a great approach. I think now you probably you probably would have the option for telehealth though and be able to see and speak to somebody over Zoom as opposed to having to be there in person. Yeah, and telehealth was sort of starting to come in um, as I was getting like recovering. So I didn't actually go through that, but that's what they were sort of bringing in. That would have made a big difference. So what was the turning point for you and, and your journey of recovery? I had my last hospital admission, I think I was... 17 just before I turned 18 and it was a particularly bad one like I I had gotten very ill and my dad actually came down for that one which is something that he'd never done and I think I think that was what made it the turning point it was extremely hard but yeah I didn't really have a choice and I'd, I'd finally realized that it was either this like I was gonna get better or yeah I wasn't gonna make it such a, an extraordinary um, crossroads to be at when you are that young, you know, on the cusp of adulthood. But I think probably like a lot of mental health challenges, you almost have to reach rock bottom to know that you have to climb out of the well. What was your family, what was their position like on throughout this? I mean, I imagine they were incredibly supportive, but it must have been a strain for them as well. Yeah, it was um, It was very hard on them, particularly my little sister, because mum was away so often. So yeah, very hard on them, very hard on dad, because he was trying to run two stations. Um, and, you know, obviously mum's his business partner, and she wasn't there a lot of the time. Yeah, my mum was just amazing. You spoke about growing up outside, being always outside. Where did you grow up or where did you spend your childhood? And, and can you tell me some of your most vivid memories of, of growing up in the outback? I grew up here on Calier Station. So my parents bought this when I was, I think, about six. And then we moved out when I was about seven. Um, and then they brought it bare, so no cattle, no homestead. So we spent the first few years, um, I think the first year we were living in Swags. Wow. Um, which as yeah as kids it was I mean it must have been so hard on mum but um, as kids it was just you know like a camping adventure we loved it we got to go to bed with the stars you know overhead every night and it was it was yeah just a lot of fun that's all I remember as kids that um, I don't actually remember doing school we did do school there but um, I don't remember that it's just um, yeah so I've got an older brother, an older sister and a younger sister and we're all very close. So it was just like having, you know, three of my best friends and we'd just play and help dad and, yeah, it was a very good childhood. Yeah, and that's serious pioneer stuff, Camille. I mean, <laughs> raising your four kids literally in the open, that's pretty extraordinary. Where did you shower or cook or how did you go about daily life? Well, the first year we, we just had cooked over a campfire and I remember we used to shower that had a water tank and so we'd just park that up and you know mum would just turn it on and be freezing and we'd all run in there under the water and run back out and you know dread the day that mum would make you wash your hair <laughs> that was the first year so it was very very much like camping out for the first year and then we got I think we got a caravan the next year so it was a little bit more um a little bit more like a home but you know it was still all of us 
crammed into this little tiny caravan and we still, you know, ate outside and because we had the stock camp there as well. So, you know, there was like six six guys there as well living with us. And so you eventually built the station and obviously your parents worked their asses off to, to build Kalita into what it is today. Can you tell us a, lot, a little bit about the operation that you run now? So now we've got uh, 10,000 head of Droughtmaster across Brahmins and um, we've moved the homestead up um, well, it's been where it is for the last 20 years. Yeah, Dad's put a lot of work into it. From Definitely from where it started, it's grown a lot in the last 27 years. And so how is your year split up and, and how does it work or how what do you do as your daily or weekly roles alongside your husband, Lockie? Uh, so my husband, Locke, is the manager and then I guess official title would be assistant manager, but I'm a bit of everything. The year split into uh, first round of mustering, second round of mustering, and then in between we've got our sale cattle. So at the moment we're doing sale cattle. Um, so it's not flat out at the moment with cattle work, but still, you know, it's always busy out here. So we're still pretty busy. Yeah. And then in the wet season, we either stay here and caretake because it floods or we go away during that time. Last year we went away, but I think this year we're going to stay. So it's, yeah, it's busy. Yeah, huge. And like caretaking during the wet season, 2020 was a pretty full-on wet season for you guys, wasn't it? Yeah, so I was pregnant that wet season. Yeah, and we got a very, very big wet that year. Um, So Locke and I were stuck out here. I can't remember how many weeks it was, but we actually ran out of, um, we still had beef, obviously, but we didn't have anything fresh we didn't have much in the pantry at all. And because I was pregnant, I was very sick for the first 14 weeks. And there was, yeah, there was very little that I could eat. Like I didn't have any dry crackers or wheat bix or anything like that. So, and just, you know, like first, first trimester of pregnancy, just the hormones. So you're moody and Locke was the only person here. That's <laughs> <laughs> hell. So it was just, it was, it was horrible. <laughs> Honestly, I, I take my it. hat off to you. No dry crackers or muesli bars during that first trimester, I cannot imagine. I think I would have died. <laughs> yeah, it was horrible. It was really bad. <laughs> um, so your big musters, what do they look like and, and how long do they take? Um, so we use mainly horses in our musters and we, we hire a couple of choppers for the day and we have two bikes. And so what normally happens is the horses will head out to like the middle of the paddock um, and we'll just grab a coaching mob which could be like a hundred head of cattle and then we'll start walking that mob back towards the yards and the choppers will just keep feeding us with more cattle as they bring them in Um, and we do it that way so that you know the cattle aren't running from one side of the paddock to the yards which could be you know like a 20 kilometer walk and yeah you're covering quite large distances so we usually leave at like, well, saddle up the horses at five, get out there at six, and then we're not usually yarding up until about five, 5.30. So it's big, big days. But, yeah, the, the mustering is definitely the highlight of working out here. Yeah, I bet, and, and those amazing sunsets. I mean, you capture it beautifully on your Instagram, which I think really shows a slice of of that outback life to your thousands of followers. Was the Instagram... Did you always intend to grow your following like that or has it happened organically? No, it was very, yeah, very organically. I didn't have any, um, there was no strategy, no plan. 
it was just I just kind of I just wanted to showcase what what we've got out here because we are very lucky to live in the Kimberley it's a beautiful place um, in Australia and yeah I just when I started there wasn't really anyone else who was showing what happens on stations yeah so just showing people what we actually do out here and to what is you know it's so normal for you but for everybody else it's the most extreme and novel lifestyle what are some of the things that you love the most about living so remotely oh the the wide open spaces like being able to go for a walk and instead of seeing people you see cows and horses and dingoes and you know stuff like that um yeah not not running into anyone um yeah and just just the freedom really being able to do yeah whatever you want step outside and go wherever you want you lived in Kananara so is that the nearest town for you guys no Kananara is about 10 hours away from us oh (laughs) um so it's actually it's actually considered close okay uh (laughs) Just a hop, skip and a jump. You lived there for yeah. six years. What was that like living there and why did you choose to, to live in town? Um, I was actually born in Kananara so, and I went, I think I did year one of school there. So I still had a few like old school friends there um, and just family connections. So, And it's a beautiful town, Kananara. It's like there's waterfalls and there's Lake Argyle. So it's a you know, if you love camping, fishing, being outdoors, it's like a bee town to go to. And uh, my sister had moved back there and also my brother and his wife. So I was like, oh, well, I'll just follow them. <laughs> yeah, so we all moved back there around the same time. Yeah, we all needed to get out for um, just leave the station for a bit and do our own thing. So, yeah, we I moved to Kanara and, yeah, it's a beautiful town. Um, it was just good for me to do something away from the station and just have that experience and independence. Um, I still came back like for the mustering for like a month or so in the busiest time of the year. What did you discover for yourself and, and what did you, what were you doing in town? Um, so I did my personal training qualifications when I was uh, 19. Um, and then when I moved to Kananara, I set up my own personal training business which I loved like yeah I was training uh mainly mums so I ran like a mums and bubs class the women that I met yeah I met some amazing women and I find that group like the best to teach because they're just so thankful to get out of the house and get away from their kids and just have that you know that hour of me time yeah mums are just incredible and which I can understand now, like, you, you know, if you get that time to do a bit of exercise, you're just like, yeah, I'm going to really, I'm going to slay this workout because this is my only hour of freedom. And <laughs> yeah, so it was really fun. So I did that for, yeah, for six years. And how important is exercise for you and, and managing your anxiety? Like running is probably my main um, stress reliever. I find um, if my anxiety gets too high I'll either go for a run or a walk and it just sort of brings me back I've always loved being active and I think that comes back to working out here like you want I want to be fit to keep up with the boys and you know to make sure that I'm doing the job well so that's why I love like being strong and fit but um yeah running and walking 
in particular, especially out here because you're in nature and it's quiet and it's, it's a great stress reliever and helps with anxiety for me. Mm-hmm. How does your anxiety tend to manifest or, or what triggers it? Mainly like changes. Like I'm a very, uh, I like to be organised and if I was to give in to my anxiety, I would be a very, very routine person. But obviously being out here, you can't have a routine because, you know, you plan to do something and then, you know, a pump will break down. So you're doing, you know, there's no routine. You don't know what you're doing. And especially with, uh, with Jack now, yeah. like he's, he kind of throws the routine out a bit. So those sudden changes, like I like to know what's happening and, you know, what are we going to be doing? And so if that, if things go really out of whack, then that's when I find my anxiety not like gets a bit out of control, but I'm, I'm definitely a lot better now at controlling that and bringing it down. Yeah, I was going to say having a baby, um, talk about best laid plans, absolutely laid to waste. How old is Jack and, and how was becoming a mum for you? Uh, Jack will be one in two weeks, so very exciting. I love being a mum. I love being a mum to Jack. He's very cheeky and outgoing and active um, and he's a handful. I wasn't, like when I was pregnant, to be honest, I wasn't sure if I would like being a mum. I was very, I wasn't worried at all about the birth, but I was like, what is going to happen after when I've actually got this this kid? <laughs> um, <laughs> but luckily, <laughs> it turned out all right. <laughs> Spoiler. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, he's just, he's so fun and, yeah, he's just such a joy. How has it changed your life? Because it does uh, make things a little bit more arduous, you know, tasks where you jump in the buggy and, and race out to fix that pump or um, jump in the yards to help out. You can't do that with a very active one-year-old zooming about. What what do you do and how do you manage your time? Um, so I'm very lucky. We've actually got a nanny and she takes Jack for about half the day usually. So I do, I do still get out a lot. And then even when I have got him, I'll take him down to the yards and just park him up in the pram and he loves watching. So I do, like we try and include him as much as we can just to give him, I, I kind of want to give him what I had as a child. I mean, it does make it hard. And that was probably one of the things that I was most worried about was because work for me is like so important. I love doing what I do. I was really concerned with how I would go getting back to work and how Jack would fit in with our lives. But it's been, yeah, it's been fine. Like he, we take him with him, take him with us when we can. And then if I need to do something like a muster, then he goes with his nanny and yeah, it's, it's been fine. Mm, how perfect. I don't know how mums do it though, if they don't have that help, because if I didn't have, if I didn't have a nanny, I, yeah, it would be very hard. Yeah, super challenging. Did you head to town before you gave birth or were there, what are some of the, um, I guess, logistics around living that remotely when you're expecting a baby, even appointments? The appointments, we had to go into Broome and that was hard. It was like a lot of travelling and then, you know, having to get accommodation in Broome is like near impossible. But for the birth, I actually went to Kununurra a month before because you're supposed to go in one month before. Um, and luckily my brother still had a house there. So I just rented his house for the four weeks before and then three weeks after. Mm, awesome. So that was, yeah, that was amazing. And so you're looking to um, ha- perhaps caretake this wet. How uh, do you prepare to be 
locked in and how do you prepare with a one-year-old? Yeah, just stock up on everything. I mean, if, if, it, if there's an emergency um, and it is flooded, we can't get a plane in, but you can obviously still get a chopper. Um, so I'm not too worried with that sort of thing. You've just got to stock up on food, yeah, nappies and stuff like that. Just, yeah, get everything in bulk. Your grocery bill, it must be horrifying. Mm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And so how many acres do you run and, and how many people are working on the place at the moment? It's 122,000. And then um, at the moment we've got, there's about seven in the stock camp. Yeah, okay. And so does that um, camp move or does it tend to stay put? No, it stays put, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. amazing. And so your parents live in Queensland and uh, back and forth, they come between the the stations. Uh, How important or pivotal is is your dad with mentoring you guys and and helping you out? Yeah, he's still um, still a major part of the family business, uh, Kalita's pretty much one of his children like he's puts his whole life into Kalita so yeah he's still a big part and um you know everything we do out here is the way that he's always done it because you know it's his it's his baby Mm. yeah so he's still a big part you are one of four and and um succession definitely rears its head in every family farming family uh how has that been for you guys yeah, so we we were potentially going to go down that that route, but I think for my parents' um, family and us siblings staying close has always been the priority for them. And so, you know, there's so many stories where succession planning has not gone well and they just really didn't want that for us. So uh, they decided we are actually going to be selling at the end of next year. So... Um. Yeah, which is, I mean, it's sad um, and I, I actually try not to think about it too much when I'm out here because Kalyida is, it is like it's family and it, it will always be home. Um, so it'll be sad for all of us, but I can see why my parents have made that decision because that family connection and um, having us all remain close without that could add conflict, who knows. So yeah, I, I stand by their decision and yeah, it'll, it'll definitely be a very sad farewell. Wow, that's just such a huge decision. For, for you then, what, what will you do and what's the plan post-sale of Kalida? We'll probably go over to Queensland because that's where my family will be and Locke's family's from Queensland and his friends are in Queensland. So, yeah, we'll probably, we might stay another few years around this area but ultimately we'll end up in Queensland. Wow, that's just such a huge transition, Camille. You're being very cool and calm about it. Oh, I, I just try and block it out, actually. I try not to think about it too much. <laughs> yeah. But you feel optimistic that you'll always be involved on the land and, and working, I guess, with your passion? Yeah, definitely. I don't ever want to live in a town. It's not. It's definitely not for myself or Locke, really. He's terrible in town. <laughs> so, um yeah, we're definitely out, out back people. 
This episode was recorded last year, and since then, Camille has experienced some new, huge life milestones, including a massive flood that seriously impacted the family station, as well as the move of her husband, Lockie, to New South Wales to start a new business, leaving Camille at home to run the station alongside toddler Jack. Camille and I jumped on the mic recently to dig into some of these life events. Could you walk me through when the flooding started, what you guys thought it was going to look like, and then when it started to turn? We sort of knew just before Christmas that there was a big system coming through. Um, So we expected to get quite a bit of rain, which is normal in a wet season. Um, You know, that's, that's the norm to get a lot of rain and to be flooded in. So, you know, we had expected we'd be cut off. We didn't know it was obviously, yeah, obviously we didn't know it was going to be that much. Um, We hadn't actually moved any cattle, which is what we would normally do if we had a big system coming through and we knew that our river paddocks were going to get flooding. We would move cattle as soon as we could. Um, What happened with this system was um, it started raining just after Christmas and it pretty much just continued to rain. So we couldn't actually get choppers in to move cattle. Choppers just couldn't fly. And, yeah, that's the same for every other station pretty much. Um, No one could move cattle and the rain just kept coming and um, it wasn't until after New Year we sort of realised that it was going to be a really big flood. Um, we could see uh, like the river levels from upstream were rising. And so um, the day before the floods actually hit us, Locke and I were talking to my dad who was in Queensland and he was saying, okay, like we've had floods this size before, so this is what you need to do. You need to move all the horses out of the stables, get them to higher ground. You need to um, get everything out of the saddle shed because the water might go through there. Probably won't, but it might. But you'll have time because, you know, the waters, it won't reach us for another, you know, three or four days. Um, so we sort of moseyed on down to the um, the yards and we were just moving the horses and, um, you know, we're like, horses? oh, well, tomorrow we'll come. Um, we only had like five in the stable, so they were just the ones that needed to stay in because um, some were injured. We had my son's little pony. We had my mare. He was just about to have a foal. So the ones that needed caring, they were the only ones that were in, luckily. So we let three of them go into another paddock, which had a higher ground. And then the others we brought up to the homestead. And yeah, we left the bobcat down at the yards and we're like, oh, we'll just come back tomorrow and we'll clean out the saddle shed. You know, we'll just move the saddles out because, um, yeah, they may, they may get wet. They, you know, we didn't think it was going to get that high. So we were like, oh, just in case, you know, we'll move, move all the horse feed, move all the saddles. Um, but we'll do that tomorrow. Anyway, I remember waking up the next morning and I just walked out on our veranda and we can see like a floodplain on our veranda. So like amazing views from our veranda. And I could just see water at the corner of our homestead uh, fence. Like I could see water lapping there. So Locke was still asleep. So I called my dad because he's in Queensland and I was like, oh, dad, like the water's right at the corner and there's like, there's brogues on my front lawn. Like there were just brogues there. I was like, I think the water's really high. And he checked the levels and he's like, Oh yeah, yeah. And then he's like, But that's that's it. It won't it won't come any any higher because, you know, dad's been here twenty six years. It's never come this high. He's like, It'll be fine. Like, you know, that's as high as it'll get. That's that's you know, pretty normal. And then just as the hours went on, it just got higher and higher. 
And then at about eight o'clock that morning, I was just on the veranda with Jack and I looked out and I could hear cattle, like cattle bellowing. And I just looked out and there was like a herd of cattle being washed away. And so I just called Locke and I was like, there's cattle like being washed away. We need to do something. That moment I was like, whoa, this is, as a person who works cattle, like seeing, seeing them being washed away. Um, yeah, it was pretty devastating. Anyway, we um we were like rushing around trying to get to these cattle, but you know, we couldn't. We drove around our homestead paddock and I could still hear like I could hear cattle. So I was just driving around and um this herd of like 50 head of cattle just came out of the scrub and were just like standing on on our sand ridge. Um so we cut the fence and let them in and they just like ran onto our lawn. I don't think that was the mob that got washed away. We saved 50, so that was pretty amazing. Yeah, because it, we were so unsure of how high it would get and the the, level, the river levels hadn't actually peaked. So it was still a long way from the home, like reaching the houses. But So they were sort of talking about us evacuating, which is something I didn't want to do because I had, you know, the horses there, my dogs, this herd of cattle. So I didn't want to leave. Um, it was lunchtime at that point. I was giving Jack lunch and Locke had let the horses, we had the horses in like a little pen, the horses that were on the sand ridge. So Locke let them go and this Jack's little pony, um, he wanted to get back to his mates that we'd let out into the paddock. Yeah, she started She started running back to the yards and um, in between the cattle yards and the homestead is our airstrip and that airstrip was a river. And it was like you could see the current. It was like waves. I couldn't do anything. She just ran straight for it and, yeah, she got washed away. Yeah, which was, again, very devastating. After that, Locke came, came up to me and he's like, we're going, like we're not staying. Yeah, and then about two hours later we were in a 44 being flown to the neighbouring station. So, like, within, you know, I woke up at 5 and then 3 o'clock in the afternoon we were out of there. Yeah, at that point, we didn't know if it was going to go through the homestead or not. I had to leave my dogs. Um, I had to leave my dogs there. So we just locked them up on the veranda and our house is on stilts. So we were pretty sure it wasn't going to get there. It might have gone through our carport and everything. But yeah, like we didn't know. Yeah. And then Locke flew back the next day. And um, I don't think the river had peaked at that point. But yeah, everything was fine. And then we we got to go home the following day. And so how much water had fallen over that preceding, what, 10 days, two weeks? We only got like 250 on us at the homestead, but I know further upstream, I think it was like six or 800 mils or something like that. And some, like one of the rivers further up, like the catchment had gotten a heap of rain. And so all that water just came down. And obviously that was the like the day that the floods reached us that was also the day that the Fitzroy Bridge went Mm. and that was just another sort of that's not something that we ever thought would happen yeah so it was just a series of little things happened and we were like this is out of control like Mm. totally unprecedented never experienced this and do you know how many head you lost we won't know until mustering but we're fairly confident that we've only lost a couple of hundred fortunately we didn't have too many cattle like we had I think maybe 1,500 in one paddock on the river and then another 2,000 on the other other side. There's dead cattle that we've seen, but they're all from further upstream. Like they're not our cattle. 
our cattle that would have washed away and died would be downstream, mm. so on other people's properties. So it's just really hard to gauge how many we've lost, but we're pretty confident that most of them managed to get to high ground. What was it like flying over just an inland sea? Yeah, it was insane. Like it was just a brown ocean. You could just see the tops of trees and like Locke flew over one of our tanks and you could only just see like the little pipe sticking at the top of this massive tank. Pretty crazy. And then like the days after we did like surveys in the chopper and you could just the smell. Like I remember Locke went up for a couple of hours and he had to come down because he was sick from just the smell of yeah dead animals, dead wildlife. Yeah, the wildlife really, really took a hit. Kangaroos, wallabies. What did the water end up peaking at? I'm not actually sure what it was on the river levels because it's it's really hard up here. We don't have very good reliable river level um, monitors. Um, so I remember like during the floods, the one that we normally count on um, went out. And so we were just relying on um, one of our friends from the community to go down and sort of tell us how high the river was. But, um, yeah, that's definitely something that um, this region needs to work on is, yeah, getting those river level monitors updated because Mm. just for your safety during floods and stuff. Totally. So in terms of the cleanup, I mean, how was that? I'm assuming it's still kind of ongoing. And and what was the response like from the community? How did you even start? Um, Well, we couldn't for a while because obviously you had to wait for the flood levels to go down. And, yeah, everyone was really supportive during the floods. I think, like, the aftermath is when um, that support sort of fades away and that's when most people need the support, really, and sort of support from your government knowing that they're going to back you. Um, It's been, yeah, it's been kind of disappointing for us to see these floods that are happening in Queensland, I feel like the Queensland government is really onto it. Whereas for us, you know, we're sort of waiting, you know, how are they going to support us? They're talking about the Fitzroy Bridge taking two to three years to repair. Like that's, that bridge connects the East and West Kimberley. That's, that's insane that it's going to take that long. Like, yeah, that's just not feasible for us up here. Like businesses are going to really suffer Mm. because of that. I know Queensland gets floods a lot more, so maybe their government's a lot more um, prepared, but, yeah, sort of underwhelmed by the support that we've received from the government, definitely. That said, like, we're a very strong community and, like, the community support has been great. Yeah, but it'll be ongoing. Because what was the main damage for for you guys? The main damage will be, like, the fencing. So we lost a lot of fencing. Like, there's not there's hardly any fencing on our property that doesn't have like covered in debris so apart from the fencing that we lost we've also got to go along and remove all the debris our access roads have been damaged so yeah like if we want to get out where we can drive now but before we had to charter flights so that you know that's not cheap to mm. charter flights to get people and supplies in and then yeah we lost um we lost tanks and solar panels yeah we're sort of still trying to get our head around how much it's all gonna all gonna cost but yeah it's yeah it's added quite a bit yeah no the scale of it is it's going to take some time to figure out so you know in terms of help and assistance I mean what are you looking for or how can how can people help I think just awareness that it isn't over and because we are such a remote area it's not 
nothing happens quickly here. Like we can't, we can't get supplies or we can't get staff in to help with it as easily as what you could in other regions. Like we are so remote and we're even more remote now that, you know, we're cut off from the Territory. Like that's the main way people from Queensland, the Territory get here is via that Fitzroy Road. Um, so we're cut off from that. Yeah, so our recovery, is it's going to take years. Businesses will really suffer. We're sort of in the process now of working out how this is going to affect like the live export industry for us out of Broome because um, obviously some people won't be able to send their cattle to Broome because they've got to pass over that bridge. And is that going to affect, you know, markets for us, for the people who are on this side? Like, is it going to be feasible for exporters to go out of Broome if they're not getting those numbers? So, yeah, there's like a chain reaction. And I think just knowing that it's ongoing um, and that just because of floods, uh, over and the, the wet season's almost over. Yeah, that we're 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 going to be fighting this for a while. And you have the added challenge as well, and that your husband Locke um, and fellow manager has moved to New South Wales for the year. Can you talk me through that, um, the process behind that, and and what your plans are for the future? Late last year, he was offered a really good job opportunity, and the plan had been for my family to sell Calida this year. Uh, when he was offered the job we decided that he would take it and I would just stay on to Calida, stay on at Calida till it sold, which is going to be, you know, August, September. But with these floods, we aren't selling this year anymore because, you know, there's a heap of work that needs to be done before it's before we can sell it. So we're looking at like next year now. Yeah, I'll be here this year with Jack and Locke will be in New South Wales uh, doing this new job. So it's going to definitely be tough. He's only been gone a week and yeah already it's sort of um it's been challenging adjusting to having to look after Jack myself and then obviously also work but I've got a really great nanny and um I'll have my dad here this year so you know just having family around means that if I need to go do something and I can leave him with Jack for half an hour or something like that but so yeah it's not like I'm completely on my own as a family for Locke Jack and I definitely will be a very challenging year. Mm. I think probably more so for Locke because he's, you know, he's not with Jack and Jack's at that age, like he's almost 18 months. So he's, you know, he's at an exciting age where he's learning to talk and he's a real little boy now. The idea is to sort of get something set up so that when Kelly sells and I leave here, then, you know, we, we go over that way and we've got stuff established to move into and, yeah, start the new new life. And so what sort of new life will that look like for you in New South Wales? I probably won't go to New South Wales. We're looking at more Queensland. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always felt New South Wales is too much of a change. Like I'm, I need to have sort of similar people and I feel like Queensland is a, are a bit more similar to like WA, Kimberley region people. Yeah, we'll settle somewhere in Queensland and I'll still work with cattle. I'm not sure what that sort of. Um, what this year's for to sort of work out what I want to do but definitely with cattle probably still in the live export industry and then the goal is to have our own place and our own cattle. It's a massive change to think you know you're going to be selling this year and you've been readying yourself really for like that emotionally for the passing of Kalida which is such a, a huge part of your history and your family's history so you know to then change the plans and to be there for a, another extended period of time how has that been for you adjusting and adapting to those changes yeah it's hard because 
like a year seems like a long time to be away from Locke and like he'll come and go but um you know a year's a long time to do the long distance thing as a family but at the same time I love Calida so if I can spend more time here <laughs> I'm really happy to do that because yeah when I look back you know after we've sold it I'll be so grateful that I got that extra time because I think leaving here and selling will probably be the hardest thing I'll ever do. Big time of change. Well, thank you so much, Camille, for jumping on and and lovely to have a little update and to see you again. Yeah, thanks, Sam. (laughs) God, I love the idea of camping out for a year under Western Australian stars. The reality and the washing situation is no doubt far more challenging than my romanticised notion. But I think what a huge leap of faith it was for Camille's parents to take their four kids and create a life for themselves on that big sky country, not for the faint-hearted. I'm sure there are members of our Grazy Her community who can really relate to parts of Camille's journey facing her anorexia diagnosis. It gave me some invaluable insights and I urge you to pass on this yarn to others who you think it might help. If it brought up something for you, please call the Butterfly Foundation's National Call Line, 1-800-33-4673 or Lifeline on 13 11 14. Thank you to Camille for her honesty and vulnerability in sharing such a tough time of her life. Don't forget our most recent issue of Grazy Her magazine is out and really crammed with the most sensational guests. You can buy Grazy Her at Quality News Agents or have a think about subscribing by jumping online to grazyher.com.au and have each of the year's six issues arrive in your mailbox ready for a cuppa and a sit down. Until next time, keep well. My name is Em Herbert and this is a Grazy Her podcast.